Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Vote 2019 edition. Day 35 of the campaign now, just six days left until Election Day. And the leaders are into the final sprint, as it were, heading to key regions in the country where they need to build support or save it. And the polls continue to indicate we're headed for a minority government, and that continues to feed talk of a possible uh, coalition government or some sort of working arrangement between the parties. We'll look at what that might mean with an expert and our party commentators. And we'll profile the riding of Fredericton. Why was the Liberal leader there today? Find out in our ridings to watch. But first, the Day 35 campaign primer. Thank you for your patience, everyone. I know you're all full of s'mores now. <laughs> Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is making five campaign stops in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia today. The Liberals swept all 32 seats in Atlantic Canada in the last election. That won't happen this time. The polls suggest the Liberals will lose seats to the Conservatives and the NDP and maybe the Greens too. At a stop in Fredericton, one of those three-way battles between Liberals, Conservatives and Greens, Justin Trudeau repeated his pledge to ensure all Canadians have access to a family doctor. And if re-elected, he pledged to invoke the Canada Health Act to force New Brunswick to fund a private abortion clinic facing closure. A Liberal government will always defend women's rights, uh, including when challenged by Conservative premiers. That's something we know Andrew Scheer will not do. Uh, we will ensure uh, that uh, the New Brunswick government uh, allows access, paid for access, uh, to clinics that offer abortion services outside of hospitals. Uh, I will uh, sit down with Premier Higgs uh, if re-elected and let him know that we will use all tools at our disposal, including tools that exist under the Canada Health Act. Trudeau continues to face questions about a possible coalition if he wins a minority government, but needs the support of other parties to govern. Today again, he urged NDP and Green supporters to come to him to prevent the Conservatives from forming government. And in terms of the NDP and the Greens, remember this. If you want a progressive action, you need a progressive government, not a progressive opposition. Voting Liberal is the only way to stop Conservative cuts. <laughs> NDP leader Jagmeet Singh greeted commuters in the riding once held by the late NDP leader Jack Layton in Toronto. Singh is backing away from his weekend enthusiasm for forming a coalition with the Liberals to block a Conservative minority government. He insists he's running to be Prime Minister, but pointing out the obvious options available to him if he doesn't. And once again urging Canadians not to vote out of fear, but to vote for what they want. I want to be your Prime Minister, but whatever Canadians vote for come the 21st of October, I want Canadians to win. And so I'm saying to win, if you vote for New Democrats, we will fight in whatever form the government takes, whatever power the people give us to make sure we deliver on the things that people need. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned in Quebec today. The province is key to Conservative efforts to win back government, but he's trying to stop the slide in Conservative support to the rebounding Bloc Québécois. 
Scheer restated the promise that a Conservative government would pass a fiscal update with tax cuts and tax credits within 100 days to make life more affordable for Canadians. He'd also convene a First Minister's meeting within 100 days to move ahead with tearing down interprovincial trade barriers. I will work with the provinces in the same spirit of open federalism our founders envisioned. And I will work tirelessly to tear down trade barriers between provinces and territories that have held captive our nation's potential for far too long. Only then can we unleash Canada's true and limitless potential so Canadians from coast to coast can get ahead. Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh may want to sideline the conversation about the possibility of a Liberal NDP coalition, but Andrew Scheer won't let them. It's quite clear that, uh, that the NDP and Liberals will work together uh, to implement uh, high-deficit, high-tax government. Uh, and it's quite clear that Justin Trudeau would pay any price to stay in power. Uh, so when we look at the NDP platform and we look at uh, their massive deficits and the tax hikes to go along to pay for it, uh, they need to be honest to Canadians exactly which taxes will go up, exactly which big projects in this country they will cancel. Uh, and uh, Canadians have a right to know that. Uh, it's a little tough. Yeah, 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 I know. Like that, like that. Yeah, I know. So with voting day less than a week away, the leaders are focused on chasing votes in key regions and ridings across the country and trying to focus the narrative for voters who may still be mulling their choices. So talk of a minority government and possible coalition governments or formal arrangements between parties. What should we expect six days from now if Canadians do elect a minority parliament? Dwayne Brad is a political science professor and chair in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, professor Brad, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Uh, why are we hearing this talk about possible coalitions now? Well, we're hearing it for a couple of reasons. One is the polls are showing a dead heat. Um, we're also seeing the rise of both the NDP and especially the bloc. Anytime there's been a strong bloc, you're dealing with a minority situation. Um, and finally, you've got uh, leaders, especially Jagmeet Singh, talking about working with the, the Liberals. Uh, Elizabeth May has mused about working uh, with the Liberals, but with certain conditions. So those are the reasons we're spending a lot of time talking about minority governments right now. What do you make of the fact that Jagmeet Singh brings it up rather kind of enthusiastically in response to a question on the weekend, and now he's kind of backpedaling? What do you make of that? Can, does that mean he's, it's not a focus, he's not interested anymore, or is he trying to sort of... No, I mean, <laughs> it's always complicated talking about minority situations before it actually happens. And you can see that quick, quite quickly, uh, the Conservatives jumped on this. And you know, just as they did in 2008, when there was a, a coalition of, of Liberals and NDP and Bloc that were about to um, defeat the Conservative government on a non-confidence vote, they, they prorogued Parliament and they referred to that coalition as the Coalition of Losers, Socialists and Separatists. And so the moment that Singh started talking about coalition, the Conservatives went out and said, see, this shows that the only stability is to vote Conservative. Uh, I think the Liberals would like NDP support in the case of minority government, but they don't like them talking about it in the middle of an election campaign. All right, let, let, let's be clear on the terms because there are several kinds of party oh. uh, cooperation in a minority parliament. What do we mean by a coalition and, and have we ever seen it in Canada? 
So what I mean by a coalition um, in a specific sense is when you have a cabinet made up of members of different parties. This is common in Europe in their, in their PR system, but very rare in Canada. The only instance uh, that I'm aware of was in World War I, Robert Borden formed a unity government with English-speaking members of the Liberal Party. Um, and that's been the only time we've had a formal coalition. Instead, what we have seen are two other examples. One are written agreements. That's when the smaller party will negotiate an agreement with a larger party and say, we will work together for two years, uh, but here are the conditions. And we saw that in 1985 when, when David Peterson, the Liberal leader, uh, worked out an agreement with Bob Ray, the NDP leader, and they formed a government. Same thing in British Columbia in 2017. The NDP um, negotiated an agreement with the Greens and allowed them to, to govern. What was interesting in both of those situations is um, the Conservatives in 1985 actually had a plurality of seats. But when the Liberals and the NDP got together, they then had a majority of seats. Right. Same thing in British Columbia in 2017. The Liberal Party had a plurality of seats, but not enough when you combine the Green and the NDP. I mean, and then but, we've seen, we, right, we've also seen, and I think you're going to get to that, we've seen minority governments last surprisingly long time in this country just by getting smaller parties to support individual confidence measures, such as a speech from the throne or a budget. I think uh, we're more used to that, certainly, in the last 15 years in this country, because we saw it with Stephen Harper. In that more informal mechanism. So in 72 to 74, the NDP supported the Liberals without a written agreement. There were specific policies that they wanted, and when the Liberals decided enough was enough, they put in a uh, budget bill that forced the NDP to vote against it, and forced the Conservatives to vote against it, we went to the, to the polls. Um, Stephen Harper was very good in his period of minority rule from 2006 to 2011, where he would tack to the Liberals sometimes and tack to the NDP at other times, sometimes promising them something for support, in other cases simply daring them to call an election when uh, the Liberals in particular didn't have a leader. And so to see how this arrangement would work, what we could have happen on Monday is having six parties and perhaps an independent or two. That is going to even complicate things even even more. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, you mentioned, uh, could, could we see some of those same dynamics at play? Because then not only do you look at uh, who's won how many seats and the possibilities for who can make who can make deals, who can form government. But then you also have to consider these notions, right? If not, who's ready for another election fairly quickly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, who's, who's got the deep pockets? Who uh, we might have some leadership questions immediately after the vote. Uh, who yeah. stays? Who goes? So. All of those are factors, right? A lot of the, the questions are going to depend upon what the actual seat count is. Is it very close? In 72, there are only two seat difference between the Liberals and the Conservatives. But what happens if it's 20 or 30 seat difference? Then are we likely to see that that uh, uh, leader who's down 20 to 30 seats is forced to resign by his own party? We also have to look at the dynamics. Does one party simply need the support of one additional party to get a majority of seats, or do they require more than one party? So if the Liberals and the NDP combine equal 50% plus one, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But what happens if the Liberals and the NDP are shy of that? 
does it then revolve around you know the liberals and the NDP and the reform or not the reform party the Green Party, and the, and then you've got the Bloc. The problem with the Bloc is it's tough for any party to work with them. Uh, they've toned down the separatism, but they're still a separatist party, uh, especially in the rest of Canada. And so working with them is delicate for anybody. I, I think people can see how. Uh, if the Liberals were to win a minority, there you can you can see a path to to governing with support uh, from uh, the NDP and, and maybe even the Greens. Uh, can you see a path to governing if Andrew Scheer wins a minority? If it's a minority parliament with Andrew Scheer uh, trying to form no, a government? No, it, it would be very difficult. It could be, uh, and you're already seeing conservative strategists talk about they need you know, a majority. How, yeah. Yeah, well, how illegitimate if the Conservatives win a plurality and someone else forms government, that that would be undemocratic. I think what you could see is, um, you know, in that sort of scenario, because it's tough to find a dance partner for the Conservatives. Um, you know, it's tough for them to work with the Bloc, as I mentioned, and the People's Party. I mean, there's a reason the People's Party was created, and that's the animosity that, that Bernier and Scheer have towards right. one another. So who do the Conservatives work with? What the Conservatives may want is for a new election and to be able to say it's either a Conservative majority government or it's, it's chaos, similar to what we saw during the, the 1920s when it was you know, the infamous King Bing affair, where it was king or chaos. Right. It could be conservatives or chaos. 1926. Let's finish on this. The country's already polarized heading into voting day. And I'm wondering for some final thoughts for you. How you think those divisions might be made worse if we end up with a minority parliament uh, well, on Monday? would be reflected in a minority parliament, right? So it wouldn't create the divisions. It would reflect those divisions. And those divisions don't just exist party to party. They exist region to region. And so we could be in a very uh, a much more difficult spot with a minority situation in 2019 than when we had a minority in 2004 or 2006 or 2008, because there's more parties at play now. All right. Uh, Dwayne, Brad, always good to get your perspective. Thanks again for that today. And uh, we'll talk soon. OK, you're welcome. There is now a clear choice between our party and an NDP Liberal coalition, which will raise taxes, uh, kill jobs, drive out investment, cancel big projects. Uh, I know Canadians won't want that to happen, and that's why I'm very optimistic for October 21st. I will not work with the Conservatives because they cut services, and their, their platform shows it very clearly. They are going to cut health care. They are going to cut transit. So there's no way I would support a party that wants to cut all the things that we need. Are you using fear? to drive NDP voters and Green voters to your party? We have been very positive uh, in the approach that we take and we will remain so. I'm looking for a strong mandate to continue to invest in Canadians and I will be sharp on the policy differences between us and the Conservatives. So we've got coalition talk, messages of fear, personal attacks and polarization and just six days to go now before Canadians make their decision at the ballot box. Right now, time for our panel of party commentators. Greg McEachern is a Liberal commentator. Ashton Arsenault is a Conservative commentator. And Anne McGrath is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Okay. And let me start with you in this ongoing conversation around uh, coalition and so on. We have uh, Jugmeet Singh on the weekend, in answer to a question, saying absolutely he's prepared to, to work on a coalition with the Liberals to stop a Conservative government. Kind of trying to walk it back a little bit now. But what, what is he saying? And I'm wondering, 
if, if you say it, can you walk it back? Or we know what you're thinking now, so what's the point of saying, well, no, I'm, I'm not focused on that. I'm now focused on winning again. Uh, what's he trying to tell us? Uh, he's saying that he's running for prime minister, uh, and he's also saying that, you know, whatever the results are of this election, that he's prepared to work with other people to advance the six priorities that he laid out. Things like, you know, affordable housing, pharmacare, interest rates off student loans, uh, those kinds of things. So he's got these priorities, and he, they're, they're urgent, and he wants to work on those, and he wants to do it as prime minister. But if he's not prime minister, he's also willing to work with other with other people in parliament to try and get those things done. So you know, it's been interesting listening to the conversation over the last few days and how mm. it's shifted. Uh, but I think a lot of people are confusing minority governments with coalitions. Right. And he's not talking about coalition necessarily. He's, he's talking. He's saying that, that we don't know what the the outcome. You don't really know what you get till the vote. As a matter of fact, the outcome. If you look at like seat projections, the different seat projections and stuff, most of them look like uh, it's very hard to tell what will happen. And a lot of them, a lot of the scenarios that I'm hearing are, you know, kind of fan. Right, but his message. But, but Greg, his message is clear. His message is, look, I'll do whatever I have to do. Well, maybe it's not clear to you, but I'll do it. <laughs> no, but at the end of the day, no, I know we don't know what we're going to see till we get a result in in the election and we see what the parliament looks like, right? Yep. But he's clearly saying, no, I'm prepared to do whatever I have to do to stop a conservative government from governing if uh, they absolutely. win. Absolutely, and, and I will, you know, not to quibble, but if you are walking something back, then it wasn't clear. Um, there, Anne is absolutely right. There is a lot of uh, muddying of the water here between what is a coalition and what's a minority. Um, Anne and I have both worked in minority governments. We may have different opinions about how they worked out. Um, but the reality is, on Election Day, Canadians are going to give the parties a mandate. And we have a House of Commons, we have a parliamentary system, and there are rules. And what the outcome is, the rules are set up. When It's pretty easy when it's a majority. We know that, you know, the, the, where the government will sit, right. committees, who's going to have majority. When it's a minority, it's a lot more complicated. And governments have to figure that out. Yeah, we, we've had experience in this country. I, mean, I talked about it earlier in the program. We've had, we had minority governments in, in, in half of the Harper years. Sure, uh, 2006, 2008, yeah. 2004. So we, um, we, we have experience with them. and Not coalitions, though, not sort of formal written. Uh, where you, you think of coalitions, I think most people that follow this think coalition governments are a government where the cabinet might be shared with yeah. different parties. Uh, that's not what we saw in this country. No, and I no. think that's the problem is that some people are being disingenuous, suggesting that, to be fair to Mr. Singh, his willingness to work with another party when he knows he's not going to be prime minister is probably not a bad thing for Canadians. Um, but trying to cast it as some sort of cabal or, you know, something nefarious, um, it's that's to the Conservatives a, a benefit, but it's also wrong. Uh, well, Go ahead, Ashley. Yeah, I'll just say that, first of all, uh, you know, Mr. Singh's been waffling on this one a little bit. And with all due respect to Anne, uh, this is somebody that more or less conceded the race before it even began. He said quite matter-of-factly that he wasn't going to be prime minister. But what we're seeing over the last few days is parties on the left stacking together and realizing that with some conservative momentum, there's a real chance that they might get close to majority numbers, and now they're sort of talking behind the scenes and trying to figure out whether or not they can come to some sort of an arrangement. Well, but where do you see the conservative momentum? I mean, every poll suggests they're still deadlocked, and both true. liberals and conservatives deadlocked, and their support dropping while the NDP yes, support's going up. Exactly. The NDP support's going up, and the bloc support is going up, right. and then we, we're starting to talk about three-way We talk about splits. vote splits and the possibility of... Exactly. Yeah. If you look at all C projection models right now, in the last week and a half, the conservatives have overtaken the Liberals for the first time in the campaign. Yeah, I guess I, I guess that, I would quibble with the notion of, of momentum as opposed to what's sure. changing in the dynamic changing in the campaign might be advantageous to conservatives. Yeah, and, and a seat projection that shows someone up by one seat 
and it's a seat projection model, I wouldn't go to the bank on that either. Yeah. So I spent most of the summer and the first part of September responding to people saying, so are you guys dead yet? Um, you know, basically that was, you know, the, the whole, that was By the, the very fact you were able to answer the man says the answer is no. <laughs> but really, you know, people were saying we didn't have it. We didn't have candidates. We didn't have money. We didn't have momentum. We were, you know, we were, we were, we were flailing. Uh, was this going to be the end? So that was a lot of the, the, the chatter, uh, most of the summer and the early part of the fall. And then what's happened is, um, as I, I think a lot of us said uh, during that time, was that Jagmeet has outperformed those expectations, run a decent campaign, had very good debate performances, and his personal approvals came up quite significantly. Then the story was, okay your, okay, your personal approvals are great, but the party's still nowhere, and the vote intention isn't changing. Now the vote intention is changing, right? So the dynamic is shifting quite significantly right now. And there are a lot of possibilities. This is a parliamentary democracy. We're not in an American Republican state. We're, we don't elect a president. We elect a, a parliament. And then there are different formulations that can happen in, in, a, in the uh, British Westminster system. So, so how do, like, what, what are you supposed to, what's the message you're supposed to be hearing here if you're a voter who doesn't follow the minutiae of minority parliaments and everything? You're getting a message from from every party that's a little bit different here. Jagmeet Singh saying, look, yeah, I'm running for uh, prime minister, but uh, if you want the kinds of things I'm talking about, make sure you elect as many NDPers as you can because we'll push, uh, you know, whoever is government will push. And if it happens to be this uh, working together with another party, so be it. And Lib he's saying vote for what you want. Don't, vote, be, right, don't, don't be scared, don't be scared off into voting for And the Liberals are saying, look, uh, the only way you stop Andrew Scheer is to vote for, for Liberals. That's the only way you do it. And uh, That's uh, accurate. Uh, well, is it? Well, I mean, or if you get a bunch of progressive parties that can band together in a some kind of working arrangement, that's how you stop conservatives. Yeah, which but will be portrayed as a poison pill one week before the election. I mean, one of my issues with this question is that it's as much as I like to defend journalists, it is a bit of a lazy question. It's, it always happens when um, the the, uh, the the polls get really tight, and I think. Mr. Singh was a bit naive, and he fell for the hypothetical question. Um, and instead of talking about issues, you end up talking about who you're going to be friends with, when not all Canadians are as uh, engrossed into um, how Parliament works, as, as Anne and I have just been saying. This is the way our system is. But if you were to hear some Conservatives, including the leader, talk, it's, it has never, ever happened in any parliamentary system before. The reality is whether it was my party working with Anne's party back in, in 2004, uh, 72 to 74, call it a coalition, call it whatever you want, but there's no way that a minority government survives unless they're working with another party. That's right. just the reality. Well, there were lots of examples when yeah. the, in the Harper minority where liberals were working with the, the conservatives to have that minority survive. Don't remind me. I, well, <laughs> yeah, look, there, look at that. So, so, like, go ahead. And, sure, and, there, look, there's a couple of scenarios in sort of Canadian modern politics when it comes to minority parliaments, right? It's either issue by issue basis, which is what the conservatives did from 2006 to about 2010. Then you've got sort of more formalized supply arrangements, which is what they have out in BC right now. And the extreme version is a formal coalition where you sort of get party swap and sitting in the same cabinet, which we haven't had since the First World War, right? So uh, depending on what the outcome is, and we won't know that until Election Day, we'll sort of get a sense of what we'll possibly be looking at. But in terms of a formal coalition, extremely rare in Canadian history. Well, the other thing I would add to that is that following an election, there may be some other outcomes where, um, for example, in 2006, Prime Minister Martin, former Prime Minister Martin resigned on election night. So all of a sudden that puts a party into paralysis. 
um, some of the things that want to snap election. Yeah, so exactly. So so there are other outcomes that will happen, and that may extend the life of a minority government. Last time I checked, I think a minority government federally in Canada lasts about 18 months, um, and there's reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of examples, though, of new Democrats uh, uh, operating very effectively in minority uh, minority governments with or without the balance of power. So even, for instance, in 2004, when Paul Martin got a minority government, we were short the number of seats for uh, balance of power, but we're still able to negotiate a, a budget amendment of $4.6 billion from corporate tax cuts into affordable housing, First Nations uh, support, um, uh, you know, post-secondary public transit. I mean, I, I think people can see possibilities for progressive parties if, if you know, if that's what's required for the Liberals to stay in government is some sort of working relationship with other parties in, in Parliament. The Greens and New Democrats, I think, are obvious choices. Uh, what's the path to staying in power if the Conservatives win a minority government? Yeah, look, I think... Who do they do a deal with? I think Andrew Shearer is pretty clear today that they're going to campaign for a majority over the next six days. Well, but if they don't get it? If they don't get it, then we'll have to assess options. But my question, first and foremost, would be, if the Prime Minister fails to win the plurality of seats on election night. Will he follow the track record of his father in 79 and Paul Martin in 2006 and resign and allow a new party to form a government? Or will he try to fight and claw and stay with left parties so that they can form a minority? That's a legitimate question. But in terms but of... But both, both options are allowed, are they not? They absolutely yeah. are. And as the Prime Minister, he's got the first prerogative of holding confidence of the House, regardless of the outcome. Um, but what I, what I will say is, in terms of the Conservative staying power, if it is a minority situation, of course, we haven't talked about the Bloc Quebecois yet. Perhaps there could be an agreement there. But those are negotiations that start taking place after all the... What are the optics coming. of anybody doing a deal with the Bloc? It's happened before. That's I mean, a, yeah. that's the that's a Harper the Harper government stayed in power with the support with the support of the bloc. It wasn't a formalized arrangement, but certainly they did that. Yeah, it was an issue by issue basis. Okay, yeah. uh, what's the last six days of the campaign about, Greg? Um, it's really tough to cut through the noise right now. So you're trying to find some way that you're going to reach. Um, the people that are most likely to vote for you, that sounds very obvious, but to look at um, uh, Justin Trudeau, today he'll be, uh, today he's in New Brunswick right. and Nova Scotia. Th those are three provinces with pretty much one media base. So if you're in one province, you will reach three. So that's why they're doing that. They probably won't be back to the East Coast this election. You'll see Trudeau going to Quebec, GTA, and BC. And basically it's about holding what they have, trying to add a few uh, a few more at this point. There are certain seats where they're looking at, say, I would say like London Fanshawe, where uh, Irene Matheson is no longer running. Right. She held the seat for a long time. Jobs are a big issue there. Anything like Southwest Ontario is around. So we see them, we'll, we'll see them going to either shore yeah, up support or try to grow support. Absolutely. Ashton? Yeah, same thing. Yeah. So Quebec, GTA, BC, you could probably expect Shear to be there in the last couple of days of the campaign. Absolutely. And his message is going to be very, very clear at this point. A vote for any party other than the Conservative Party of Canada is an endorsement, frankly, of a high tax and unending deficit uh, government for the foreseeable future. And that's the reality. The NDP and the Liberals have more or less said, without explicitly stating so, that they'd be more than glad to work together as long as the Conservatives don't win. And I'm sure the Green Party will pile right on in behind them. So with the surge in support for the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, I think it's going to be about looking at some of those seats that uh, might not have been in play before and trying to shore up some support in those and see what, 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 what there is there to capture from the momentum that we've seen in the last uh, week or so of this campaign. Uh, let me do a quick, quick final, uh, and I'll frame it this way. It seems the, the, the last few days, and I suspect the re remaining days of the campaign, are, are going to be wrapped around this notion of fear. 
you know, fear, fear the conservatives, and really you, you got to fear the new Democrats. You got to vote liberal. Fear the coalition, and maybe a slight twist there. Don't fear. You might be the don't fear side think, that I says. Think we're the, I think we're the hopeful, optimistic campaign, and I think that that's actually part of the success that Jagmeet has had. Is he is seen as he's, he's a good campaigner. He looks happy. He is uh, he is relentlessly optimistic and 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 positive. And I think that that's partly what is really gathering a lot of momentum behind him. Greg and the Nash. Well, I, I think the Liberals have made their points about the environment and social issues. I think they really have to hit home that the economy's done well. There's been a huge amount of jobs created. I think they have to accentuate those positives to try to do what Justin Trudeau said in Montreal in 2014. Conservatives are our friends. We should be trying to get their votes. I think we want to see Liberals trying to appeal to Conservatives that are not happy with Andrew Scheer. We know they exist because of the Peter McKay speculation last week. So I think there's some some uh, uh, room there for the Liberals to move. Yeah, a couple of things. Going after the soft Liberal vote, so the switch vote, very important uh, in terms of message contrast over these last couple of days. And I'll just point out one thing. Uh, apparently we're up 25% in advanced voting uh, this time around over 2015. I suspect that'll factor into the calculus of the ground. I, I wonder. When I saw that, I did a little research. I mean, there's a couple of things to consider, right? The, there were longer hours this time yeah. and more days and more People polling. are used to the convenience of more, more polling stations, good weather, largely good weather. So I'm not, I'm not sure it means there's a, a mood to vote or whether it was just easier to do it this time Historically around. Historically not great for incumbents, but this campaign's sort of been, uh, you know, a, a who's who yeah. if we don't know, right. so we'll figure it out. All I right. hope that those numbers do mean that we'll have a higher voter turnout. I'm not sure whether yeah, no it matter how it people doesn't. vote. Be yeah. good, good to no, see I, people No, I, I hope that that's what happens, but it is also true that uh, there are all those factors as well. Um, the political parties, the major political parties, put a lot of focus on advanced voting now because if you can get those votes in the box uh, before E-Day, then you you're, not, fo your you're not focusing on your, your decideds. All right. Thank you yeah. all. Take Thank care. You. Thanks, Peter. Well, now we'll shift our attention to one of the key ridings in this election campaign. This was the Liberal leader working supporters at a campaign stop in Fredericton, New Brunswick today. He's there because the Liberals are trying to hang on to as many seats as possible in Atlantic Canada after winning all 32 of them in the last election. But the polls suggest there will be losses this time around and perhaps more than just a few seats. Fredericton is shaping up as a three-way battle with the Liberal incumbent up against strong Conservative and Green Party challengers. Why is Fredericton in play? What could the rise of the Greens mean there? Good questions. And why Fredericton is a CPAC riding to watch. Fredericton is a city which is really taking the climate change issue to heart. Amidst the strikes and protests, the climate change debate is having a profound effect on the election campaign. 
Here, the Green Party is hoping to win a seat, and the Liberal incumbent is facing a tough, unpredictable three-way race. Okay, so I'm Jenica, I'm the candidate. Yeah. Um, and we're just canvassing the neighborhood today. Okay, what are your, besides the environmental issues, what are some of your other uh, ideas? Sure, and I mean, that's a question we get all the time. We actually were just talking about this, and it's, it's important for us to prove we are beyond just one issue. The Green uh, candidate so here is Jenica Atwin. She's an educator, and she ran unsuccessfully for the Greens in last year's provincial election in New Brunswick. In that election, the Greens elected three members to the legislature, and that's put some wind in the sails of the federal Greens in Fredericton. I'm running for a whole host of reasons, um, but really it's for it's for my children and it's for my grandchildren and, and future generations. And so that's something that I've kept at the forefront of all of my decision making. It's really informed my career as well, working with Indigenous youth. It's just something that uh, I've been taught to really to focus on is that the de decisions that we make today affect us down the road. And so that's really uh, you know what it's about. Hi there. How are you today? I'm well. Matt DeCourcy. Hey Matt, yeah. I've seen your picture around town. Yes, it's around okay. a few places. The Liberal incumbent in Fredericton is Matt DeCourcy. He swept to victory in 2015 when the Trudeau Liberals won all 32 seats in Atlantic Canada. But the dynamics have changed dramatically and he's focusing now on what he says the Trudeau government has achieved. Good morning, Matt DeCourcy's campaign office. Joanne speaking. When we talk about affordability, we have an aging population here and seniors are looking for increases to their pension benefits. We've been able to increase and help lift seniors out of poverty uh, through our work on the Guaranteed Income Supplement, and we have a plan to support them through increases to old age security. Um, families want more support through the Canada Child Benefit, which is helping over 8,100 families in the Fredericton riding alone, and we have another uh, commitment in place to boost the Canada Child Benefit in the first year of a child's life. In 2015, he won handily. He got almost half of the vote in this uh, riding. Uh, his conservative opponent was Keith Ashfield, who was an experienced, uh, well-liked uh, politician at the provincial and at the federal level, but um, he was ill and did not campaign very robustly at all. Plus, Mr. Ashfield was caught up in the anti-Harper uh, wave, I think, and so he only came in with about 28 or 29 percent of the vote. Uh, you would think from that that uh, Mr. DeCourcy would be very comfortable then. He's got a large cushion, he'll be fine. Uh, I, I'm not so sure. This riding has gone back and forth between Conservatives and Liberals for generations. And, uh, you know, circumstances are different this time than they were in 2015. And your name is? Andrea Johnson. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm your federal Conservative candidate. The Conservatives are pinning their hopes on Andrea Johnson, a business development executive and a single mother. I'm running because for me it was about not having uh, my voice represented in my riding. Um, you know, my oldest is uh, graduating from St. Thomas this year, my youngest went away to Mount Allison to school, and so from a timing perspective everything worked. Um, I've always felt like it was everyone's job to give whatever it is they have to give and it's how I've raised my kids and so for some people that's money for some people that's time for me at this point in my life it's it's public service and that's what I want to give but the big difference in this election has been the strong surge in the Green Party support some of that is due to this man David Kuhn the leader of the provincial Greens in New Brunswick he represents a Fredericton riding in the legislature and so he and the Greens are more or less a household name here Part of it is just introducing myself, um, right. but if you, there's, my key issues are kind of on the card, but 
yeah. I'd love to know if there's issues that are top of mind for you as well. How do you think having those three greens in the legislature, how do you think it's changed things on the federal level? Well, really, I mean, it's David Kuhn's leadership, and that's kind of sp that speaks volumes. People, as I'm knocking on doors, are telling me, are you going to work as hard as David? Because that's what they're used to seeing now from their, their, their representative. And so that's really where that change comes from, is now the expectations are, the, the bar has been raised because they s have seen what it can really look like, and they're asking for better, and they're asking for that of their federal representatives as well. Um, and certainly the momentum of this riding, where David won by such a large margin, we're hoping to pick up on that momentum to, to see that it will translate into that federal vote. In Fredericton, the Greens can be a spoiler. Uh, as you know, the, uh, the Green candidate in the provincial uh, uh, election, uh, David Kuhn, won handily in 2018. Uh, this is his second term in, uh, in the legislature. The Greens now have a ground game. They've got a, a, a strong, enthusiastic body of volunteers who can do lots of door knocking. And uh, that's like the retail end of politics that the Green Party in this riding has begun to really build up. For me, I'm usually very concerned about the environmental issues, especially things like climate change. Um, I like just competent management of the country as well. Um, those tend to be the things that I, I would focus most on. But Does that have you leaning any one way or another? Um, yeah, I'm leaning towards the Liberals. Um, like how they manage things so far. Um, I try to to avoid all the, a lot of the controversy and the noise that comes around with it. I'm mostly just interested in actual policies, the things that they're actually doing, and I like in general the things that they're doing. Climate change and uh, native rights would be really important to me in this election um, because I feel like it's something that's really gone along the wayside um, over the last four years. <laughs> so. so does that have you leaning? It sounds like you're not very satisfied with the way the government's been handling it. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> does, have you decided how you might vote? Um, well, federally, I'd really like to see the NDP, um, but it looks like the way everything's leaning in the province is uh, more towards Green Party, so I'll probably be voting Green just to be strategic. The other big change in the election dynamic here in Fredericton is the collapse of support for the NDP. Mackenzie Thomason is 21. He's now the interim leader of the provincial NDP. He took over the provincial party when it failed to win a single seat in last year's provincial election. He's also the federal candidate here in Fredericton. And he's witnessed the defection of a handful of provincial NDP candidates to the Green Party. And he admits some traditional NDP voters are turning towards the Greens. I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've had an issue with that in the past. I think that, like I say, when, when people meet Jugmeet, when they hear him speak, they, they are going to draw that distinction between the Greens and the NDP. Um, Jenica is doing very well. I've met her on multiple occasions. I actually ran against her in the 2018 provincial election here in New Brunswick, and she's a wonderful woman. She's very well-spoken. She's very educated, and, and her and I get along very well. Um, I do think that some votes have gone to the to the Greens from the NDP. Um, you know, the last provincial election was probably an, a great, good example of that. Um, but I think that, like I say, when people meet Jugmeet, when they hear our message, uh, they are drawing that distinction, and it's it's about getting that message out. In Fredericton, with two universities, a community college, and several private colleges, there are a lot of young voters here, and a big issue for them, obviously, is climate change. Liberal Matt DeCourcy is trying to dissuade those interested in voting green because of the environment. Well, in a tight race uh, here in Fredericton and in other communities across the country, every last vote is going to matter because the real threat here is that Andrew Scheer is elected 
and that all the work that we have done to implement a climate change plan and reduce emissions across this country are cut and done away with and that we as well retreat from the international stage because we know we have to engage the international community on the issue of climate change. For 10 years, Canadians were talking about the need to safeguard the environment and we had a Conservative government led by Stephen Harper that did nothing on the environment. We put a plan in place with clear targets and funding to help achieve it and we have commitments to do more and there's a threat that people who are concerned about the environment uh, help elect an Andrew Scheer-led government that cuts all the measures that are in place to see significant advancements in uh, reducing the impacts of climate change. Um, I want to show you this. I mean, it's, it's, it's significant. This is Think Green, Vote Red. So this has been circulating. Uh, it's very clever. Uh, some of the Green Party people say, that, oh my God, this is a, like a direct, this shows that you're feeling the heat uh, in trying to attract Green voters or potential Green Party voters. What do you, what do you, what's the strategy behind that? Well, there's a significant threat of people who care about uh, the environment and care about addressing climate change electing Andrew Scheer uh, in ridings like Fredericton and right across the country. So we really look at the numbers. We know that not all Greens and all ridings are going to be elected, so that's really where some of that uh, concern might, might come from. We want them to look at uh, where the races are close, and Fredericton is a good example of that. So a vote here does not a vote for Scheer, and that's what some people have talked about, but we've been very good at dissuading them otherwise and kind of talking through this as an option and saying, you know, real democracy is about putting your vote where, it, where you want it to count where it aligns with your values and we've, we fought for that right and so we, we want you to continue to do that and not have to worry about who's going to be worse off for the country it's who's the best option but when people at the door say to you yeah. well I'm afraid because if I vote green I may be then taking votes away from the liberals uh, the greens may not make it over the top and that means it's more likely that the conservatives will make it over the top and environmentally uh, some of those voters might consider the conservatives the least mm -hmm. attractive how yeah. do you answer that like well, that the math we're hoping that that traditional liberals will vote green with us so that we can kind of be this green wave and that we won't even have to worry about that as an issue. Liberal candidates saying to people, don't vote for the Greens because if you'll vote for the Greens, it will elect, you'll elect Andrea Johnson of the Conservatives. What do you make of that whole pitch? Oh, he's not wrong. I mean, you know, it's uh, because he knows that that green vote cuts into his. And so, you know, the less, the less liberal vote, the, you know, the, the better that that benefits me. Um, you know, the reality is, is that a solid climate platform has to be executable, for one, that you have to be able to, to roll it out. And, you know, the, the green plan is very ambitious. However, on October 22nd, when there's four seats out of 338, you're, you're not going to get any of it done. And you're not going to get any of it done without bankrupting a country that's already $700 billion, billion in debt. Another long-standing issue has flared up again in New Brunswick, women's access to safe abortions. The city's only freestanding medical clinic, which offers abortions, is closing. Green Party leader Elizabeth May happened to be in town campaigning with her candidate as the news of the closure became known. It's somewhat ironic and saddening that in the middle of the federal campaign, a key point of accessibility for women in New Brunswick, and I want to stress as well as for the LGBTQ plus community, is threatened with closing imminently because of a decision by the Conservative government here in New Brunswick. Away from the crowds, the doctor who runs the clinic told CPAC that after five years, the provincial government's continued refusal to pay for abortions outside of hospitals is forcing him to close. The only thing that I provide as a family doctor in this practice that's not funded is abortion. 
So, and that is all because of the provincial legislation, the Provincial uh, Medical Services Act. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, Regulation 8420 has a stipulation that limits uh, Medicare funding for abortions unless they're provided in a hospital. Um, that legislation was put on the books in the 80s, and originally it was meant to deter Henry Morgenthaler from coming to New Brunswick. So the difficulty for you is the financial one caused by that prohibition in performing that act? Yeah, I mean, there's two parts to it. I'm the only provider in the in the province that does uh, second trimester abortions. So the hospitals stop at 14 weeks in Moncton and 12 weeks in Bathurst, and we go to 16 weeks. So if anyone finds out they're pregnant later in the pregnancy and they can't get an appointment at Moncton before 14 weeks, then their only option is to come here or travel out of province for care. And those patients uh, typically can't afford to travel out of province. So when they come here, they typically also can't afford to pay for health care, as they should never be asked to. So we just don't turn them away. The um, federal health minister, Jeanette uh, Petipa-Taylor, has been down to New Brunswick, been down here to talk with the provincial health minister, uh, and she's made representations to them. Uh, What's your understanding about what's happened to date? I mean, um, I... I can't account for why our provincial health minister is delaying on this file. He was the health minister in his previous tenure uh, before the Liberal government for the last four years and before this second round. So he's very familiar with it. Um, This is not the first federal health minister that has uh, directed the provincial government to remove these illegal restrictions. So over the last couple of months, I've had the pleasure of actually sitting down and speaking with Dr. Edgar, who who works and runs Clinic 554. Um, His frustrations within the system are, are... you know, so poignant. He is so upset by having his voice kind of being silenced on many of these key issues. The reason they're closing down is because of a financial burden that he has had to to bear um, providing these services because they're not funded because of our New Brunswick Medical Services Act. So there's an explicit um, mention about abortion services that are provided outside of a hospital, um, and so it's not funded. And so he's basically doing a lot of this by going into personal debt. Um, And of course, the clinic goes far, far beyond abortion services and reproductive justice. It should be seen as a center of excellence for, for the trans community and other LGBTQ folks and just engendered health as well. So as a federal candidate on this, what would you do? I would ensure that we uphold the, the Canada, Canada Health Act um, and we we fund services that are outside of a hospital setting because actually we know through research that it's a much safer option to have community-based support for those kinds of things. So would Ottawa then in some way penalize uh, New Brunswick, the provincial government, for its uh, New Brunswick Health Act? Well, I mean, we, we've already seen it play out where we've had the federal minister come down here and kind of try to strong arm the, the New Brunswick minister and, and nothing has happened. So clearly we need to do more. We need to be more aggressive. And I'm not sure really what, what steps need to happen, but it seems to be that we must ensure that New Brunswick upholds the Canada Services Act um, or the Canada Health Act. We have a, a publicly funded health care system and the, the federal government gives a lot of public transfers uh, to provinces to help fund their their. Uh, uh, healthcare systems, and I think it's it's it needs to be made known that when you get these these transfers, you can't pick and choose what what it goes to. It has to go to your your healthcare system as a whole. You can't say, okay, we're going to send it all to this place and not give it to you know in, in this yes. instance, clinic five five four. Universality and accessibility. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's it needs to be made known to the provinces that you you can't underfund something until it closes. I know that uh, the Minister of Health, Jeanette Petitpa Taylor, my colleague from just down the road in Moncton wrote a letter to the provincial health minister, Ted Fleming, earlier this summer, putting them on notice that they need to meet the requirements uh, that they're beholden to under the Canada Health Act 
and 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 I've spoken to the minister, and she has not been afraid to use her authority as a steward of the Canada Health Act to withhold dollars from several other provinces for certain other reasons. And a re-elected Liberal government will look at all options to ensure that reproductive health services are available in communities uh, right across the country. Will you go as far as withholding funding from this, uh, from the provincial government because of the situation with this clinic and, and a law which has been on the books here in New Brunswick for 20 years? It would be inappropriate for me to suggest that within a writ period, like we're in right now, that we can intervene. But uh, we worked with the previous provincial Liberal government to ensure that there was more access in this province. In this election, what's important for you? Um, I think at this point I'm more leaning towards like environmental issues and who's kind of covering stuff like that and that's probably the biggest thing for me with this one. Um, has that helped you make up your mind? Have you made up your mind who you might vote for? I'm a little bit torn. I'm still, uh, I'm still kind of trying to debate between NDP and the Green Party but I think at this point I'm leaning a little more towards Green. They seem to kind of know what they're doing at this point. I think climate change is an is a issue. You know, it uh, has to be addressed seriously. Um, are you leaning any one way or another when it comes to that issue and has that affected how you might vote? Uh, it's pretty hard to say. You know, you might want to vote green, uh, but there's that vote splitting thing. So you guys going to do something uphill on the uh, environment from Liberals? Uphill from, the, from what they're planning on doing? Well, I think the, difference, the biggest difference in, in the platforms are accountability. I think, you know, you need to have... Uh, for me, the accountability has to start a little bit closer to home. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it, it is a lot about, it's uh, a lot of little things. Like we don't have a, a harmonized recycling program across our provinces. You know, we're talking all these big, big, big things when there's all these little things that we're skipping over. In a riding where the environment and climate change seem to be really consistently on voters' minds, how does Conservative candidate Andrea Johnson sell her party's climate plan? Well, I think when you're starting from nothing, I think you need to look at what is executable, what is reasonable, and what can be done that has an impact. And some of our items, I mean, we have the most comprehensive plan, we have or there's 50 different items on this plan, but it's, it's simple things that it's not an end-all, be-all. So there is not a, 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 a harmonized recycling program across provinces. You know, there's some provinces have a very in-depth um, composting and recycling and whatnot, and we have none of those things. So, so starting with, let's just try to get everyone on the same page from recycling, you know, that those, it's those types of, of items that are on our plan, but because it's not, you know, costed out at, a, at $60 billion to do, it's like, oh, well, they don't have a very ambitious plan. What about carbon emissions, though? I mean, obviously the big thing that most people are talking about yep. when they're talking about the end of the planet, quote-unquote, yep. uh, it's, it's, it's CO2 and it's carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. What about people who say you don't have targets, you don't have anything firm in your plan? So it's a bit of a, like a kiss and a promise. Well, I think to, that fight is global. I mean, we know that there are 12% of, of emissions in Canada come from buildings, so we are looking at a, a, a tax rebate up to 20% of your green renovations you can get back, which helps um, all Canadians be more environmentally friendly as it relates to their home. But at the end of the day, if that fight doesn't get taken global, it, it's irrelevant. I mean, you know, if you look at the overall, the overall pie, you know, Canada, I think I read the stat was we're 1.6% of the overall pie. What's important to you in this election? Uh, I think the uh, overall situation about the climate change is a big issue. 
with the floods here in Fredericton, it's awful. Every spring it's been reoccurring, and I, I guess it's not going to change unless something is being changed. So that's an issue that uh, kind of concerns us a lot. Both in 2018 and again this spring, residents of Fredericton and up and down the St. John River had to deal with the damages from what's been called a once-in-a-century high water levels as the river overflowed its banks and flooded properties. Hydrological engineer Hans Aris has been called in repeatedly to assess the threat levels on the river and to propose measures to adapt to them. But he says in the long term, the only solution is to address or mitigate the cause of it all, climate change. We take a look at the, the adaptation. I think both the federal and provincial governments, as well as a lot of the municipal governments, are on board now. And, and basically, there's funding available to construct adaptation measures. Uh, on the mitigation side, that's basically you know reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, I, I think that's still a work in progress. Uh, you know, the clock, as everybody knows, is ticking on that. And, you know, listen, if we were to hit a two degree Celsius increase above historic levels, uh, you know, we got some very nasty feedback mechanisms kicking in. Uh, so that, you know, we're going to make sure we don't hit that. There's only a couple parties I'm interested in. You're one of them. Okay, good to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the only platform I can understand anyway. Okay. Um, the basic income for universal basic income, that sounds kind of interesting. Yes. What's yeah. that mean? So it's, it's a poverty alleviation strategy. Right. It's basically meant to kind of have a ground floor for anyone who's so currently homeless. So you work and get that or, on top? Is that kind of how Well, that so it's non-taxable. Um, right. It's something that wouldn't affect your, you know, EI or any kind of other process for right. subsidy. Um, but it's really designed for those who are in, in poverty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or for those, you know, who maybe they want to take extra maternity leave and they want to stay home with their children longer, or maybe they want to stay home and take care of their, their aging parents. Kind of yeah. 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 So yeah, it's just yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a safety net and it's kind of a design to replace the current, you know, multitude of safety nets that we have to be this kind of one thing that works. And so it's been, it's been done in other countries and we're really looking at it as a, as a great option for Canada as well. Interesting exchange on that doorstep. The uh, the fellow was asking you about the guaranteed basic or guaranteed living income. Mm -hmm. Do you get a lot of questions on that? Because we've talked a lot about the environment, but that's another part of your policy. Mm -hmm. It depends on where we are for that to really come up, um, and it's it's something that we're really excited about. We know that the the numbers suggest it can actually save us money on some of the other costs down the line. Um, but yeah, there's some people who are concerned about whether or not people would take advantage of that. As you know, we we hear that a lot with some of our welfare uh, programs. Um, but it's uh, for most people, it's an attractive thing, and they're 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 excited about it as well. So we're we're happy to hear that. They're candidates. They want to be. They want to be MPs. What does MP stand for? At New Brunswick's Multicultural Council building in Fredericton, new Canadians are hard at work on a crucial skill, learning English. Now a central issue here for the future of Fredericton and Atlantic Canada as a whole is immigration and reversing the trend of an aging and constantly dwindling population. It's a matter of economic survival. In Fredericton over the last uh, few years we've seen, uh, obviously in 2015-16 we saw a significant number of, of Syrian newcomers come to the area. Uh, across the province we welcomed uh, over 1,500 um, and that was uh, the, the highest per capita number of Syrians that came to any province in the country. Um, so we were really proud to, to uh, be a, a key partner in that initiative. Um, last year Fredericton welcomed uh, 1,460 newcomers, permanent residents. Um, and those numbers continue to rise in, uh, year by year. We, we were doing some analysis about uh, immigration trends and it's interesting, uh, since 2015, 
we've seen a 72% increase in overall immigration to the Atlantic region. And that's by and large due to the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program, uh, but as well increases to other, other streams. The Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program, I think it is working. I think it's bringing in more people. It's, it's certainly putting a, a focus on our region. One of the things that's interesting about the AIPP is that a lot of the onus is on the employer to do a lot of the work in helping to uh, settle their uh, new employees and the people that come here. And there's a relationship that's built between the employer and the potential employee even before their feet hit the ground. So I think that's a positive thing. I think that builds, uh, that helps people to put down roots in a new community. In New Brunswick, we're expecting 120,000 permanent exits from our workforce in the next 10 years, which represents one in three working people. Um, so it, it's a significant issue we're facing and, and uh, whatever we're doing today is only going to need to ramp up in the years ahead. I think people understand that Fredericton is, is growing. It's a model of economic growth, social inclusion and diversity and I think we serve as a model for the rest of the country and people want a strong voice in Fredericton uh, helping bring federal government supports here that can continue with that economic growth, uh, more inclusive supports for a diverse community, and, uh, and, and tackle the very real challenges that we face due to climate change. So we absolutely have to have immigration. Um, we have to have an immigration system that not only um, keeps the integrity of our borders, but also makes sure that that hardworking grad student isn't waiting two years to come here. We need to have a credentialing system on the education piece so that when our newcomers come here, that, we're that they're able to use their skill sets that they brought with them from, their, from wherever they came from. You know, they, I had a meeting the other night with the immigration um, uh, women's group, and they want to come here to come to work. They want to contribute. They want to look after their families. And that the key piece missing that has always been missing is recognizing their, their education credentials. How's it going today? Good. Good, good. I'm Matt. Hi, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So what do the leading candidates in this election race have to say about their chances and why voters in Fredericton should vote for them? I bring a fresh perspective. I bring um, the voices of the underrepresented. I bring a lot of passion for people. My background as, a, as an educator as well, I think actually lends itself quite well to the political sphere. We're not used to seeing that, um, but I really think it's about the diversity of voices and, and bringing people together for a common goal. And that's really what I bring to the table. I think people should vote for me because, you know, for one, I'm not your typical politician. Well, I'm not a politician. Prior to December, I've never been involved politically at this level before. Um, you know, and I think I bring a lot of different skill sets to the table. You know, I, I am a single mom. Um, I've, you know, raised my kids. I work hard. I don't back down. And, and at the end of the day, it's my job is to do the right thing, regardless of what that right thing is. And I think that has been lacking in our, in our elected officials. I care about this community and I care about um, students having an opportunity to go to our world-class post-secondary institutions. And if they want to stay here, we want the job opportunities for them. I want my parents to have an opportunity to live long, healthy lives and, and be well, because quite frankly, they and the senior population here put the foundation in place for people like me and younger generations uh, to help make Fredericton as strong and vibrant as it is. In the writing of Fredericton, New Brunswick, for CPAC, I'm Martin Stringer.